feel more comfortable this service. Last service I had, I tried the hands-free mic. Um, but my beard was just so big that it kept pushing the, it off of my face. So I was constantly like scratching at it. And then I realized it's really not that bad of a problem to have. My beard is too big. It's like saying, you're too awesome. You're too awesome for this, this uh, hands-free mic. So you can have the handheld mic for second service. So I've got my second service handheld mic, and my beard is still big. So I'm excited about that. All right. As Pastor Cameron said in the video, we're going through the final part of our um, core values, which is E, extending the kingdom of God, evangelism. And hopefully when we think of extending the kingdom, and we think of evangelism, we think about the gospel, right? The good news. And today I want to talk about just that. If we can get the, yeah, falling in love with the gospel. Why is it good news? And we're going to go over some four aspects of the gospel this morning, and I hope that as we go over each one, the Holy Spirit will just really stir our hearts and cause us to fall deeper in love with the gospel message, but also with the person of Jesus. That's my heart. Some of this stuff might be review for some of you. Others, it might be brand new. But ultimately, my hope and my prayer is that we will fall more and more in love with Jesus this morning. Does that sound good? Can we pray? Father, we love you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Spirit. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would be the teacher this morning. Without you, these are just empty words. I pray that you'd empower my words, anoint my words, that they'd be your words, Father, and that we'd fall more in love with Jesus this morning. We love you. Amen. All right, so I'm going to open up our talk about the gospel with talking about Pablo Picasso. Because what better way to talk about the gospel than talk about the atheist painter? Right? Just a joke. All right, that's Pablo Picasso. And there are two of his works. He's known for cubism, kind of this weird, creative, distorted type of art. And Pablo Picasso was on a train in Spain one day, and this businessman approached... Pablo Picasso, the great painter, and said, Mr. Picasso, sir, I don't know how you'd address him, famous artist, Mr. Picasso, why is your art just so weird? Why is it distorted? Why is it unrealistic? I think art should be realistic. Pablo Picasso, this famous painter, is kind of taken aback. Who is this guy? Kind of hesitates, and he says, well, sir, what is your idea of reality? And the guy reaches into his pocket and he pulls out this pocket-sized picture of his wife and says, there, that is reality. That right there is my wife. And Pablo Picasso, he he looks at the the, the photo, he kind of laughs a little bit and he says, really, this is your wife. She looks kind of small and kind of flat too. And the point that Pablo Picasso was trying to make was, here's this, this woman who's worthy of a masterpiece. She's beautiful. She has depth. She has a soul. And he tried to reduce it to just this snapshot. And, and what Pablo Picasso is saying is she deserves a masterpiece. She deserves something like this. So what's the point here? It's, um, you know, I feel like it's in some ways, in the same way that this businessman had reduced the art to this two-dimensional picture, sometimes we can do the same thing with the gospel. We can take this three-dimensional gospel and try to force it into a two-dimensional box. Or we can try to take a three-dimensional gospel and present it, or a two-dimensional gospel and present it in a three-dimensional world, right? 
So today I want to talk about maybe a fuller picture of the gospel. Um, for example, first of all, when, when I was 10 years old, I was already a very passionate evangelist, mainly because I couldn't stand the, the, the thought of my family and friends rotting in hell. That was about my extent of the understanding of the gospel. Um, and I remember one night, I had a sleepover with one of my friends, and my, my friend, I wanted to evangelize to my friend. I wanted to tell him the good news. And I did. I was like, um, Jesus died to pay for your sins so you can go to heaven. That's great news, right? And he's like, yeah, that sounds like good news. And as we continued to talk about it, this 10-year-old was like thinking about it, and he's like, Aaron... This sounds all well and good, but heaven sounds kind of boring. I mean, it's forever. What are we going to do the whole time? And after that, there were more questions about why does God allow sin? Who is God anyway? All this stuff. And those questions were just too big for my 10-year-old brain at the time. And um, what I'm hoping to do today is, is kind of expand and, and paint a bigger picture of the gospel. In no way is this comprehensive on everything that we believe about the gospel, but I want to look at four points um, that I think are really, really important and that God's been putting on my heart lately. And before I get into that, you know, we need to be preaching a gospel that's less about ourselves individually, less about what Jesus can do for us. And he does a lot, and it's amazing. It's amazing to be in relationship with him. We need to preach a gospel that points to Jesus and demands discipleship, right? Amen? All right. So today I want to look at four aspects of the gospel. And if I've learned anything from Pastor Cameron, you want to have an acronym for your points. But if you don't have an acronym, at least have them all start with the same letter. I couldn't come up with an acronym, so I'm doing all the same letter this morning. Not quite at that stage, but we'll go with this. The first point is the rest of the... The first point is the gospel is a story of rescue. Um, the second point, I'm sorry, I should be helping you out with the clicker here. The first point is that the gospel is a, point of, is a story of rescue. The second is it's a story of return. Um, the third is it's a story of a renewed people being launched into their purpose, being launched into their destiny. And the fourth point I want to look at today is it's a story of a reigning king. All right? So, um, we're going to be throwing a lot of material at you. I hope that some of it sticks, and Holy Spirit, help me. Here we go. Rescue, first point. You know, the story of the Old Testament really is an unfinished narrative. In Genesis 1 through 3, it tells us this story of God creating a people to fill the earth, for him to have a relationship with, um, for them to to govern the earth, to fill it, um, and, and to grow this awesome um, paradise and kingdom. It also tells the story of how Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They disobeyed. They allowed sin into the world. And that changed a lot of things. It changed everything. Um, and then in, in Genesis 12, really through the end of the Old Testament, it tells the story of Israel, right? God's chosen people. He makes a covenant with them. Um, you're going to be pe- my people. I'm going to be your God. An amazing promise. And he also promises that I'm going to use this people to um, reverse the curse and, and, and set people back to right relationship with myself, right? And, and return people to their original intent, to their original purpose. That's what I'm going to do with Israel. And the Old Testament, you know, it tells the story of, of Israel's glorious beginnings, this incredibly high calling, um, this amazing stuff that God does. But ultimately, it tells the story of um, 
a, a people that ultimately fails, and they're in exile. Um, along the way, you know, God frees his people from Egypt. He raises up judges. He raises up leaders to try to keep his people on track. But Israel always seems to turn away, right? And, you know, when we reach the time of Jesus' birth, most Jews really didn't truly believe that the exile was over. I mean, their uh, Babylon rule was over. The temple had been restored. But there's this, still this sense of being slaves in their own land because these pagan rulers still were lording over them. The Romans, right? Um, so throughout the gospel, Jesus makes this claim that he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He has come to rescue his people out of exile, right? Even the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. So, in Matthew 121, the angel tells Joseph, you know, your son, Jesus, is the one who will save his people from their sins. Now, to us, that makes sense. You know, um, we all have sins, and individually I can find salvation, and I can go to heaven um, through Jesus. But I think to the first century Jew, it might have been a little bit different, actually quite a bit different. You know, exile was the payment for their sins. So, if they're forgiven of those sins, it must mean freedom from exile. Uh, freedom for entire people. That's a little different, right? And even then, I think they tried to reduce it to, oh, we're just getting freed from Roman rule, which is a big deal. But really what Jesus was offering was so much more. He had come to not free them from physical exile, but from spiritual exile and deliver them from the rule of sin and death, not just the rule of the Romans. Right? Is this good news? Yeah. So it was really a, a change of direction for an entire people. It was going from spiritual slavery to spiritual freedom. Now, in Luke 4.18, Jesus references a prophecy from Isaiah 61. It's a messianic prophecy about the coming Messiah. And when he reads it, he says, This is me. I am the Messiah. And he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And this resonated with the hearts of the first century Jews. Freedom to the captives. Setting the oppressed free. But Jesus' promises was not just for freedom from a, um, a worldly ruler like Babylon or Rome. He promises a freedom from the Babylon of sin and death. That's a bigger picture, right? So, how can we apply this to our daily lives? How can we apply this, this point of rescue to our daily lives? Just as the first century, well, first century Jews may have tried to reduce Jesus' message to, I've come to free you from Roman rule, we might fall into a similar trap in that we think of all of this as some far-off prophecy. That one day Jesus will split the sky, he'll rescue us from all this trouble on earth, he'll take us up to heaven, and we'll finally have freedom. But the message of the gospel is that rescue has come. Freedom has already been extended. To, you know, Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 4, which we just read, he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's done. Rescue has come. Freedom is being offered. So also, when we look at the gospel through the lens of Israel, or through the Old Testament, we see it not just as a small 
story, but we see it as this incredible, glorious rescue from years upon years of sin, rebellion, slavery. It blows it up. Um, so we, we, we realize that no matter how many times that we turn away from God, He finds a way to rescue us. We are never beyond redemption. His arm is never too short. That's the message of the gospel. That's what we fall in love with. That's the person that we fall in love that with. That is Jesus, right? All right. So that's um, rescue. Let's talk about return. The gospel is also, I believe, the story of Jesus as Israel's God coming back to his people as, as he had always promised. I feel like sometimes the gospel we present and the gospel that I present is this distant God who allowed sin to come into the world. And, you know, he was distant for a while. And then he said, you know what? It's time to save them. Let's go back and we'll, we'll, we'll save them. And we just completely overlook this whole story of Israel. We over, overlook half the Bible. Um, but the whole way through the Old Testament... God proves that he desires to be with his people. He is intimately involved in their lives, right? Is this making sense? Because they're quiet. Maybe you're just thinking. So, for example, in the book of Exodus, you know, God accompanies his people on their way out of Egypt. Cloud by day, fire by night. He parts the Red Sea. He provides manna. He does these amazing things. He provides a tabernacle where he says, I'm going to be there and you can worship me there, you know. Um, but despite all that, that, all those plans almost unravel when they build this golden calf and they say, you know, we're going to bow down to this. This is our God. And that becomes a theme throughout the Old Testament, right? A God who desires to live among his people, walk with his people, lead his people, but they're unable to. What he's unable to completely do that, due to their rebellion, and their sin. And God goes to great lengths to try to be among His people. Right? He, he sends prophets, he sends leaders, kings to try to keep them on the right track. He saves them from destruction over and over and over again. But eventually, Israel's rebellion, and habitual sin, causes God to abandon the temple. The, the Babylonians plunder it, destroy it. And there had to be this sense among the Jews at that time that God had left. And when is he going to come back? Well, God sends prophets, right? And he promises a glorious return. And his people wait years and years in expectation for his return. And when we think about that, the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus becomes illuminated, Right? And then when we read the book of John and we look at John 1.1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses later, John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This phrase, dwelt among us, I wish I could pronounce the Greek, but I can't means to set up a tent, a tent or a tabernacle. To first century Jews, obviously that means one thing. It means the tabernacle where, where the Shekinah glory of God resided. Where, you could, where, where in the Holy of Holies, the priest can go, high priest can go one day a year and meet face to face with God, right? That was, that was what it was all about. And here we go. John says now that, that Jesus is Temple 2.0. 
He is the perfect temple. No longer is it just the high priest who can go um, and meet with God face to face on one day a year. Suddenly, God is among us. I can walk with him. I can talk with him. I can let him lead me. I can have relationship with him. him. It's Jesus. This person. This person is God. And just as God went with his people during the Exodus, you know, cloud by day, fire by night, Jesus didn't just go up to heaven and say, good luck with that, guys. Take the kingdom to the ends of the earth. No, he left us the Holy Spirit. And he planted it within us. The Holy Spirit that fills the universe, that fills eternity, fills our hearts. That is good news. I hope you guys are getting excited. I am. I'm getting worked up here. All right. Application. What's the application for this idea of God's return? I think it's pretty simple. Sometimes we feel like God is distant. I guarantee you there's people in your lives that think God is completely absent. But the message of the gospel is that God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. Jesus walked, these, walked the earth. He paid the price so that he could put his very spirit within us and walk with us, lead us, guide us. That is good news. Yeah, thank you. I need more of that. <laughs> All right. We've covered rescue. Um, we've covered return. Now let's talk about this idea of a renewed people being launched into their purpose, being launched into their destiny. Um, so Jesus, when he, even, when he came to earth, he immediately had a purpose for his followers. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12, the 12 apostles, um, with the commission to heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out team, demons, and declare that the kingdom of God has arrived. Awesome. But he also says something in- interesting. He says, don't go into Gentile territory. Don't preach to the Gentiles. Seems strange. Well, it isn't until after his resurrection that Jesus commands his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. The mission is still the same. We're to extend the kingdom. We're to call people to come, follow Jesus. But now it's no longer just Israel. As it always has been intended, it's now the entire world, right? What Jesus had done for the nation of Israel while he was on the earth... We're called to do that now for the, for the entire world through the power of the Holy Spirit and with Jesus by our side, right? Yeah. That, that gives new meaning when we look at verses like John 20, verses 21 and 22, when Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. John 4.12, he says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Wow. Do we believe that? That's the message of the Gospel. If the Greeks had the punctuation mark for an ellipsis, ellipses, dot, 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 Graham told me that they don't, so... I'm good there. If they did, I feel like it'd be at the end of every gospel. The end of the the story of Jesus' ministry is just the beginning of this incredible tale, this incredible story of God bringing bringing heaven to earth, right? We get to be a part of it. That's good news. Awesome. So the application, I think I just said it. 
a crucial piece of the gospel is being launched into our destiny. Our destiny is to share the kingdom of God, to take it to the ends of the earth. But also, um, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong part. Uh, the application. Sometimes should not keep pieces of paper on opposite sides. I'm good. A crucial piece of the gospel is being launched into our destiny, yes. And when we, when we sign up to, to follow God, it also comes with the commission to do something. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may, may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we're the chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, but it comes with the commission to, to declare the praises of him, to share it with people, right? It's making sense? Awesome. So we've covered the, the first three. Rescue, return, um, the renewed people being launched in their destiny. I want to talk about the last one. This is the one that really resonates with me, really gets my spiritual juices flowing. Check your spiritual pulse right now. Be ready for it to spike because this is the, this is the fun part. The, the reigning king. Um, all of Jesus' ministry was set against this backdrop of Caesar being Lord. And he didn't take kindly to anyone questioning his authority or anyone questioning his kingship. On the other hand, you have God, who's pretty familiar with taking down kings. Right? Egypt, Philistine, Babylon. So when Jesus came to earth and said, I am the Messiah... There's probably this idea of, yes, awesome. We finally get to have this epic clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of God. And this is where we come out on top. And in some ways there is. If you read the New Testament, or you read the Gospels, you see that there is a clash between Jesus and the Romans. Maybe a little more subtle. Actually, a lot more subtle. It's not violent. But the most climactic clash, I feel like, takes place in John chapter 18. And at this point, Jesus' own people had seized him. They had taken him before Pilate. They're going to bring charges against him. This guy says he's the son of God. This guy says he's a king. He's questioning Caesar's kingship. And that's not right. So Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus' reply is, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. Basically saying, <laughs> if I was in a worldly kingdom, it would be on right now. We would be fighting and I would win. <laughs> but the difference between the two kingdoms is very striking. On one hand, you have Caesar's kingdom and really all the kingdoms of the world that make their way to the top through physical power, through might, through strength, through violence. On the other hand, you have Jesus, you have God, his kingdom of truth. That, that's the weapon that he chooses to fight with. It's the weapon of truth. And truth threatens empires that are built on lies, corruption, injustice, right? So you can see how this is a little bit of a clash right now between Jesus and Pilate. Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to let you go and the authority to crucify you? Jesus replies pretty bluntly and says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Jesus is speaking the truth right now. 
The kingdom of darkness has some limited power. But ultimately, all power, all authority belongs to God. And he says, belongs to me, Jesus. I am, I am God. But Jesus' own people don't believe it. Pilate asks the people, shall I crucify your king? And what I I think is one of the most chilling sentences in the Bible, the people say this, we have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine the betrayal and pain? Jesus is fully man. He had to feel that. He had invested a lot. He had come to earth, done miracles, spread the truth, built relationships, and now his people say, we have no king but Caesar. The Jews have gone from saying, we have no king but God, to proclaiming allegiance to the kingdom of this world, to proclaiming allegiance to the kingdom of darkness. But the amazing thing is, the good news is that Jesus stuck to the plan. He stuck to the plan. He went to the cross. Out of an incredible love for humanity, he went to the cross. And Jesus goes to his death with a very sarcastic and mocking sign above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, here hangs your king, defeated, dying. Again, that's not the end of the story. Three days later, he arose. Not just as Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, but as Jesus, King of Heaven, conquering King of the entire world. That is good news. Jesus' love had defeated and reversed his people's rebellion. That's powerful. They had chosen the kingdom of this world, but his kingdom of love overcame it and defeated the kingdom of darkness and crowned Jesus as rightful king. Amen? Are you here? That is good news. Maybe we've all heard it, so it doesn't resonate as much, but that's a big deal. That is good news. So at the risk of sounding cliche, love wins. Rob Bell, your book, I don't completely agree with it, but I love your title. Love wins. Um, The love of God rescued us. It goes with us and launches us into our destiny as co-heirs with the king of the universe. I want to repeat that again because it really encapsulates everything we've talked about this morning. The love of God rescued us. There's point number one. He rescued us, saved us. It goes with us. He returned from heaven to earth and he goes with us and continues to go with us. It launches us into our destiny. Our destiny is to to share that with everyone, to take it to the ends of the earth. And finally, it's as co-heirs with the king of the universe. And that's a part that's been resonating with me lately, is that the gospel is the story of a reigning king. Let's make it less about ourselves and more about the king. Right? A lot of times when we present the gospel, we want to present it as a self-help book. Here are some snapshots from the Word that tell you, here's how you deal with that problem, here's how you deal with that problem. That's the Gospel. The Gospel is a story of a a, a king returning and taking his rightful place on the throne. That is it. Okay. Let's close with this. Let's close with this challenge that I have for you. I recently 
read through the Old Testament in chronological order, which was difficult. I'm not going to lie. In the middle of Leviticus, I was really trying to trudge through that. But um, I wanted to look at it through the lens of, of Jesus. And you see over and over again, the scriptures point to Jesus. So my encouragement to you is, even if you've read it before, read the Old Testament, read it chronologically. There are plans that you can get for that and read it chronologically. And as a result, see how it always points to Jesus. And see, as you do that, how you'll fall in love with the story of the gospel. You'll fall in love with the person of Jesus. I've fallen more in love with the gospel through reading the Old Testament than I have through reading the, the four gospels before. Mainly because I knew them already, but... Um, Okay, and the last thing I wanted to say is, is find your role in advancing the kingdom of God. This whole series is about we're ambassadors. That's a part of it. That's part of the gospel is your role in extending the kingdom of God, right? So be looking for that. Um, and yeah, th- those are the things I want to leave you with. Thank you so much um, for listening this morning. It's been an honor to talk with you. I'm going to welcome up um, Dan to close us out. I do. Could you put the challenge back up there? I love it when they when they actually do the response and then ask you to come up and do the response. So it's pretty good. Uh, I love that focus thing because while that opened my eyes, that off of you and and on to the kingdom. Uh, yeah, what can the Bible do for you? What can you know? What can the story do for you? But it's more. You know, we've given a, we've been given a commission to spread this, and uh, you know, Jesus said, "I am with you always." You know, even until the end of the earth. Paul says, "I am not ashamed of the gospel." You know, I love the the story with the footprints. Uh, you know, the guy asked, you know, along the beach, there's two sets of footprints, and then there's only one, and he he asked Jesus, you know. And he says, you know, what's that all about? And he says, well, when there were two, we were walking side by side. When there was only one, I was carrying you. And when you saw the two lines, that's when I was dragging you, kicking and screaming. Okay. So, and I think we can all relate to all three of those. And I think the difference, uh, you know, between those going out and sharing the gospel and those... You know, sucking up God's message for how it can help them is, you know, the title of his message, you know, falling in love with the gospel. You know, Paul loved the gospel. All the people you read about, you know, love the gospel. And, uh, you know, God didn't promise it was going to be easy or good in a worldly sense. Uh, of the twelve original apostles, thirteen, you know, including Paul, one took his own life, and all but one was killed because of their love for the gospel. But I don't remember hearing about any of them going kicking and screaming. You know, they accepted it. You know, it was this is this is just this is a price my Savior paid for me, and it's a price I'm willing to pay. So that's the key. It's the love of the gospel and that faith that he's always with us and always will be. So in response, I just think I like the challenge. Okay? I think the very first time I got all the way through 
the Bible, I left it in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, that's that's the time I had. And sometime I was in there maybe a little longer than I really had to be. Because, you know, I was in one of the good parts. And um, some of the... Some of the stuff is hard to get through. And I, I told myself I was going to read every word, you know. The genealogies, I don't think I will understand what, how important that is until, you know, until my life here is done. But it must be important because I put it in there. Uh, yeah, as soon as they say begat, you know, your mind kind of closes down. But I did read every one. <clears throat> and, you know, I've gone through a couple of times since then too. Uh, the chronological, I loved it. I bought a chronological Bible. I mean, that just made so much more sense to me because, you know, this is kind of the order it was in. And they'll tell you, well, this is probably where it was. Some people say it was here. It doesn't matter, but it, it's just so much clearer. So I challenge you today, wherever you have to put that thing, try to pick it up every day, okay? And just read, you know, read what you can. And, uh, you know, get through it and pray before, you know. <clears throat> and I will, I will close with that with a prayer. <clears throat> Father, we take today. We're taking one step, one more step closer to you, Lord. And we are committing to reading your word on a regular basis. And, Father, we just ask that you tear the veil, you break our stones and give us hearts. Father, that you open our understanding to your word. Father, that you show us how it all fits in. That you show us how every word points to Jesus. And Father, we know you are faithful in this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, to my right, your left, we have a prayer ministry. If you need prayer for anything, if something's struck you today and you're having a problem with that one step, if you're having questions, you know, please come and get prayed for. If you have healing needs, come and get prayed for. On this side, we have our Rhema team. Uh, they are people who have been trained to hear God's voice. And uh, we only have time for a couple after every service. It's a first-come, first-served service. And... Uh, they will let you know what encouraging words God has for you specifically. So you are dismissed. Stand up and greet one another. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday.